Well, good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to our symposium on uh, evaluating the impact of the gut microbiome and therapeutic advances for improving IBS with diarrhea outcomes. Uh, I'm Larry Schiller from Baylor Hospital down the street, and with me is Dr. Christian Weber from uh, the Boston VA and uh, Boston University. And uh, we're delighted to be here today to talk with you about this subject. It's uh, an area I think is important for you to understand uh, because we're getting into a situation where we have many medicines approved for treating irritable bowel syndrome, and uh, we're trying to find the right recipe, the right place for each of these things. So before we start, uh, let's do some of the preliminaries. We have some disclosures. Dr. Weber is pretty unconflicted. I guess your wife is the conflict there. And uh, I'm pretty conflicted, but I give equal opportunity to all of these uh, companies. So, Our learning objectives today, we, we basically want to go over the clinical background so that you can understand the situation with uh, IBSD and its various treatments. And uh, at this point, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Weber to the podium to start off the session uh, with a discussion of diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome. Christian? Thank you very much, Larry, for this kickoff uh, on an, an, a very important issue because it affects a lot of people. And I'll give you some overview here first. Um, I want to give you an overview what is uh, irritable bowel syndrome, how may, uh, do we diagnose it, and how to put it into a larger perspective here. The first slide shows that it's one of the disorders that we understand is uh, called functional GI or gastrointestinal disorders, and they are considered to be disorders of the brain-gut interaction. And uh, that can affect the motility of the gut or its sensibility, uh, hypersensitivity, in other words, the pain threshold, can also affect the immune function of the gut as well as we just heard, uh, potentially the microbiota, uh, so the totality of microorganisms in the gut. And it affects clearly the CNS or central nervous processing. Here is just a, a, another slide showing the same in a different um, image on the right-hand side, you can see the concept, uh, conceptual idea of the brain-gut axis, uh, where we can see that the central nervous system actually interacts with the gut, and we have a name for that. The big brain is actually the enteric nervous system. So they talk to each other, and if this is disturbed, that can actually result in a functional gastrointestinal disorder. And a lot of aspects are affected from inflammation to uh, food intolerance um, and hypersensitivity, as I mentioned, and abnormal motility of the gut. And then there are a bunch of psychosocial issues that are also involved in the pathophysiology of this condition, of this syndrome. As I just mentioned, it's an extremely common syndrome. Uh, um, I've put together here the estimated prevalence rates of functional GI disorders. We have a variety of disorders that are ordered essentially by anatomy. So we have esophageal disorders such as globe sensation or chest pain, um, or which is probably the most common one, 
functional dyspepsia. Uh, you can see about 20 to 30% of the entire population is affected by this. And so if you extrapolate that, let's say, uh, for the population of the United States, that's about 80 million people in this country. So similarly, um, we have irritable bowel, and that's what we're talking about today, with an estimated prevalence of 10 to 15% in the United States. You will see different numbers in different publications, which relates usually to different methodologies, how these numbers were obtained. The uh, hallmark or definition of IBS um, relates again to the altered motility of the gut and the hypersensitivity, so a different pain threshold that results in an um, uncommon pain sensation in these patients. Second hallmark um, of these symptoms is abdominal pain and altered bowel habits. And as a matter of fact, um, sorry, that was a little fast, um, the Rome criteria have over the years determined which constellation of symptoms, of clinical symptoms, actually constitute the diagnosis of irritable bowel. Uh, the last iteration occurred in 2016, published in gastroenterology, and are called Rome 4 criteria for IBS. And they require that you have um, at least one day, or, or at least daily symptoms in uh, a succession of three months, and two of the following symptoms should be present <laughs> related to defecation, these are um, change in frequency of stool and or the stool form. So abdominal pain must occur on a certain number of days per week and in a number of months um, in the, um, over time. So it's a chronic condition. Now, um, although it is lunch, we need to talk about uh, stool today. Um, and. Uh, this obviously always uh, gives uh, a, a lot of chuckles down the right, but I want to introduce you to the idea that irritable bowel comes in different subforms, and it really depends on whether on uh, which stool form you have or how frequently you actually go to the bathroom. So we use a particular scale, which is called the Bristol scale, that describes, and you can show that to the patient actually, which um, appearance the stool has, and depending upon the frequency of the change in stool form, you can then subtype the particular form of IBS. So for instance, what we are talking about today is that in, if you do have more than 25% of your bowel movements um, in a scale from uh, six to seven, so you diarrhea, in that case, you would be qualified as irritable bowel syndrome with diarrhea or predominant diarrhea IBS. These subtypes have been actually studied in terms of how frequently they occur. And, um, and we can see here in two different studies, it's almost equally distributed. In other words, each of the subtypes have roughly about 30% uh, prevalence in these studies. Now, in general, in, as an overview of the epidemiology, again, I mentioned that uh, worldwide the estimated prevalence is between 10 and 15 percent. 
Um, it occurs in all age groups. Um, women are much more affected or more frequently affected than uh, males. And in general, we see the onset of uh, irritable bowel or the age of diagnosis uh, before the age of 50. Uh, that has major implications also for what we would recommend for a diagnostic workup. Um, in general, we think of the diagnosis as being very stable, so symptoms in general don't really change much over the years of the duration. Again, it's a chronic condition, and there's one particular subtype that I haven't mentioned yet. There is about a 10 to 20 percent um, prevalence within the group of IBS that apparently is related to a diarrheal illness uh, that precedes the onset of symptoms. We call or refer to it also as um, post-infectious IBS. And uh, this is uh, just a number, uh, another study that was recently published and uh, trying to summarize all the prevalence rates uh, that were um, actually looked at over the years. And what I want to point out is these are geographical areas. So you can see that from Asia to um, Africa and North America, the actual rates vary uh, between 10 and 20% roughly. Um, also what you can see here is that the rate of the female uh, patients actually is about 50 to 60%. Um, again, that may vary uh, from study to study. What the main uh, information is from this, these studies that are, have been summarized in this particular study are very heterogeneous, so they have very different methodologies and therefore are very difficult to compare to each other. Plus, which is actually very important too, they really don't tell us much about the pathophysiology of uh, irritable bowel. This is just another map of the world and shows you um, where data have been obtained on the prevalence of, of the irritable bowel syndrome. So the United States, about 20%. Other areas in Asia, maybe around 10%. Again, those numbers may depend also how they were obtained in terms of the study methodology. Um, this shows you a similar map, just looking at the post-infectious IBS. That is important because, first, it may take a different longitudinal course as opposed to um, other forms of IBS. Um, and what you can see here on the map is that different organisms that have caused the post-infectious IBS are differently distributed throughout the world. Now, what happens to these patients with IBS? Once they have a diagnosis, the diagnosis actually turns out to be extremely stable, meaning that the patients, when they are re-examined years later, years after the initial diagnosis, still have the same diagnosis and appears that mostly, as you can see here um, in the last uh, row, most of the time the pattern of IBS, the subtype, actually has not changed. So the disease pattern and um, diagnosis is extremely stable. Now, why is this so important? There are two or three major reasons. First, I think I've tried to convince you that IBS is exceedingly common. Millions of people are actually affected by that in the United States. So therefore, the burden of the disease relates 
to a healthcare burden in terms of office visits and utilization of other services in medicine. I want to point out two. First, again, the high rate of patients that actually seek medical attention in primary care as well as in GI. So it's a very high percent of patients that show up. And uh, again, that the um, uh, overall prevalence is extremely high. So you can see it just by the increased number of primary care visits and GI visits, uh, the healthcare burden is highly increased and I will show you uh, particular numbers on that. Um, the, you can also see that the uh, services that will relate to that, particularly in primary care, will again be a driver of cost increase, primarily due to referral to the specialist, which then uh, results usually in uh, services such as endoscopies. Uh, that is, in my experience, primarily driven due to the an insecurity of primary care providers to make a positive diagnosis of IBS, which in itself doesn't really need much of a workup. Here is some data actually from um, my own group at Boston University. What you see is we've looked at, in a prospective fashion, at the number of office visits um, and compared non-IBS and IBS patients. And you can see that there is a huge and highly significant difference in patients with IBS syn uh, syndrome uh, in PCP offices as well as in GI, whereas um, PCP visits not related to IBS are actually equal. Similarly, we also take, uh, took advantage in our institution at looking at disparities. Here, uh, racial disparities, and you can see again, uh, accumulating the number of office visits uh, broken down based on race, you can see that, in fact, um, here PCP visits with IBS symptoms um, are clearly utilized more uh, by African Americans, um, whereas in the GI office, that's not the case. So th this is very important information. This is an uh, important study, actually, that was published uh, three or four years ago and looks at the total adjusted mean annual medical cost for patients with IBSD. So this is just patients with the confirmed diagnosis of irritable bowel with diarrhea. You can see here in the left-hand panel, this is the total cost for these patients on an annual basis. So you can see here this is $13,000 with a very wide uh, range of, uh, uh, in the assessment of these numbers. Whereas in the same group, the GI-related uh, cost was much lower. And on the right-hand panel, you can see that this is actually only for those costs that are IBS-related. So uh, what's interesting is that the main driver of the cost in this case is really by services, that is, um, office visits here, and services like diagnostic testing, including endoscopies, for instance, takes the bulk of it. Now, the other major impact of all functional intestinal disorders, and specifically IBS, which has been studied the most, is the effect on quality of life. This is a, 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 one of the first studies comparing actually non-IBS and IBS patients 
in a questionnaire which is called SF36. This is a generally used health care um, quality of life questionnaire with 36 questions. And the higher the score, the better you feel. So what you can see here clearly that the IBS population across different domains, these are different aspects of our health, are all scoring significantly lower as compared to the uh, general population in the United States. Similarly, we actually did in our institution a study where we looked at, at that as well, a little bit more complicated because these are actually the raw data. IBS and non-IBS compared here, significantly different as well as here. These are two components. We are usually looking at mental health component as well as physical components. And you see in both domains, highly significantly different. And um, as I just alluded to, we have also the opportunity to look at uh, racial disparities. Here we find that, and again, this is a general um, health healthcare quality of life questionnaire. Although in all IBS patients it is diminished, there was actually no difference between uh, racial groups that we looked at. In contrast, if we test the IBS-specific quality of life, which is really different, uh, it turned out that there was a highly significant difference when we looked at three different racial groups here, whites, blacks, and Hispanics, in five of the domains that test specifically for IBS, we had vastly different uh, outcomes when we compared. And overall, we found that Hispanics uh, scored by far the poorest. Um, all of that was not seen in the control, which uh, was highly significantly higher in general. Okay. Um, important uh, practical aspect that the Functional GI disorder, IBS, does usually not come alone. We have other conditions, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome. Important is psychiatric disorders like anxiety, depression. These are highly, highly common in patients with IBS, um, as well as gynecological conditions. And we also see in some areas that they undergo more often surgical procedures. Uh, particularly cholecystectomies or hysterectomies when presenting with abdominal pain. Alarm features are those features that in the workup of the patient, so when we see the patients in clinic, should alert us uh, not to make the diagnosis of IBS rather than looking um, at other explanations for symptoms. So these alarm features are bleeding or anemia, uh, nocturnal symptoms, any family history of cancer, um, age, because it is uncommon to present um, above the age of 50, um, and a very short history of symptoms, because that would really not qualify for irritable bowel. The testing should be actually really minimal, and that's where really healthcare utilization kicks in, and if primary care who sees really these patients mostly um, will overutilize that at the end will result in higher cost. So mostly we don't really have to do anything, particularly if the clinical criteria of IBS are present, we don't need routine use of colonoscopy. There is no need for referral. 
there's also um, uh, the need for some blood testing, and I will show you later the updates, but nowadays we do think that celiac disease should be tested for. Um, and we should obviously look at patients who would qualify for colorectal cancer screening should undergo screening. And this is a summary. Um, again, testing minimal, which is important to curb the cost, um, and should be really focused on the symptoms. For instance, um, CRP and fecal cow protectin, these are two stool and blood markers that potentially are useful in um, irritable bowel with uh, diarrhea should be considered. No routine colonoscopy and no other blood tests really except for celiac sprue. Um, treatment options, which um, Dr. Schiller will allude to a, a lot more in detail. There are FDA-approved ones, which we heard, alosetron, aloxadolin, and rifaximin. Others are actually not approved, but widely used. Now I may pass on to Dr. Schiller. Thank you very much, Larry, for this. Thank you. Thank you for a great summary, uh, Christian. All right, well, now we're going to move on to talking about what causes this uh, syndrome and what we can maybe start to do about it. And this is an area which has undergone a great deal of change in our thinking in, in recent years. Uh, you'll notice we're talking about microbiome, and uh, you probably heard this uh, in, in just the regular lay press, if not uh, your uh, technical press. But uh, you know, inside each and every one of you, there are about 100 trillion bacteria right now. <coughs> and uh, they're very happy. They have 10 times uh, more cells than we do. And so uh, in, some, in one way of thinking, you know, we're just a big bag carrying around some bacteria. But the thing that's interesting about the bacteria is that they have unique genes, they have unique metabolites, they have a unique way of dealing with their environment that interacts with our environment too. And we're starting to wonder if some of the patients who have IBS with diarrhea have a disturbance of that microbiome. Well, the first point to make is that we're talking about a syndrome. And remember, a syndrome, uh, as we, we discussed uh, its uh, definition before, is a group of symptoms which consistently occur together. That's what you see in the, the dictionary. It's not a, a disease where you have just one cause for it and you find that cause and treat it. So there are many different causes for the syndrome of irritable bowel. And uh, this is a very common problem, as you've seen. It involves a lot of medical heartache for lots of people. And it's difficult for doctors to deal with because it's not a single disease that you can do the single test for, make a diagnosis and treat. You have to talk to the patient, see if they fit these criteria or not, and then make a diagnosis of irritable bowel, but realizing that that doesn't really tell you what's causing the problem. The other issue that comes up with this is that what happens to someone who doesn't quite meet the criteria? If they're a little bit off, do they have something different? Well, probably not. All the studies we have so far show that people who don't conform with the criteria are very much like people who do in almost every way. So that if you have this combination of pain and diarrhea, you probably have IBS even if you're a little bit off from the criteria. The criteria were set up to deal with research, 
and studies of different drug therapies not necessarily deal with every patient. Now, remember, syndrome is not a disease, so we're going to be talking about several different causes about it. But what distinguishes this group of people? Well, if you label someone as having IBS, it, it identifies a group of patients who don't have cancer. They almost never have, say, colon cancer. In fact, there's a lower incidence of colon cancer in people with IBS than people without it. They don't have inflammatory bowel disease. That's not Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And unfortunately, it's not curable. But it is manageable, and that's the thing that doctors have to face every day. Now, the other thing that IBS identifies is a group of people with chronic pain. Because remember, pain is a criteria, the absolute criteria for having IBS. And chronic pain is associated with anxiety, depression, somatization. And these are important co comorbidities and need to be managed. So it's not just getting someone's bowels in order, it's getting their head in order too. And that takes a lot of time, sometimes psychological intervention. Now, the thing to keep in mind, I think this is rapidly evolving, is that IBS may have some identifiable causes. Right now, we don't bother identifying the cause because people aren't going to die from IBS. They'll just be you know, made miserable by it. And so the things that seem to be related to IBS include things like food intolerances, bile acid malabsorption, dysbiosis or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and then scattered other problems that are shown here. And the thing you notice, if you're quick at math, is that these percentages add up to pretty close to 100%. So it's not as though IBS is some mystery problem that we have no idea about its cause. It has some causes. We just have trouble identifying these because we don't have specific tests for them. And so we have to work through these differential uh, to try and get people more permanent help. Now today we're going to concentrate on the microbiome-associated problems, dysbiosis and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now, one of the interesting things uh, is the fact that uh, Christian mentioned earlier is that IBS seems to follow people who have acute gastroenteritis. And this is the kind of gastroenteritis that any of us in this room have. Americans, even though we live in a pretty clean environment, have on average one foodborne illness about every three years. So it's very prevalent. And some people who have that acute gastroenteritis go on to develop IBS. That's called post-infectious IBS. And if you ask IBS patients, there's a history that goes along with that in anywhere from 28 to 58% of these patients. Another group of patients have problems with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's easily shown to be true in those individual patients. That's maybe another 23 to 45% of IBS with diarrhea patients. And then this concept of dysbiosis, which we'll talk about, if you look at the germs that live within our gut, uh, meta-analysis shows modest differences in the population of that flora between IBS patients and normal subjects. Well, this is the schema for post-infectious IBS that was uh, developed by Dr. Mark Pimentel out at Cedars-Sinai in, in Los Angeles. And it's really exciting work from a disease pathogenesis basis. He made that uh, realization that a lot of people have uh, IBS after an acute illness and wondered how it could happen. And he set about doing some animal work 
which is very convincing and very good. It's summarized in this article that's cited at the bottom of the slide. And he's done some work in people that corroborate this as probably being a mechanism in many, but not all people who have IBS with diarrhea. So it starts off with food poisoning or acute gastroenteritis, again, a very common phenomenon. It's often due to bacteria. These bacteria produce toxins that make for the diarrhea and the other symptoms of the problem. And as people are wont to do when they're confronted with uh, foreign proteins, they make antibodies to them. So uh, one of the toxins they make is something called cytolethal distending toxin B. And it's common to all these common causes of gastroenteritis. Well, when you make this antibody, it turns out that it interacts with uh, a body protein, a normal human protein, called vinculin, which is present in the cell junctions that keep the cells tightly together, and in the enteric nervous system. So that when you get this infection, whoops, sorry, wrong button. When you get this infection and you make the toxin, you make antibodies to it, and they cross-react with vinculin. And that produces, in essence, what amounts to an autoimmune disease. Your body's immune system is reacting to normal body constituents. This, over time in the animal studies, causes gut nerve damage. The enteric nervous system has cells drop out. Uh, that leads to impaired motility and bacterial overgrowth, and that's associated with a number of symptoms that we see and recognize as IBS. So this holds together in the animals. It's very well demonstrated in this group. In people, we know lots of people get food poisoning. I'll show you evidence that they make these antibodies in a second. We don't know for sure that this happens. We know some get bacterial overgrowth, and we know lots end up with IBS. So there's still pieces to put together in this puzzle, but it's very fascinating. So what uh, Mark did was look at uh, these antibodies, uh, antibodies against cytolethal distending toxin B and antibodies against vinculin. And this slide shows you the anti-cytolethal descending toxin B titers. And he compared it to healthy controls, whoops, the wrong button. Healthy controls, people with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and celiac disease. And you can see that the IBS population had higher titers of these antibodies, going along with the idea that this pathogenesis mechanism may have occurred. Now, the other thing you'll notice is there's tremendous overlap. I mean, the range here is quite large, and all these things overlap. So if you try to apply this as a test, what ends up happening is that the specificity is pretty good. If you have a negative test, then you probably don't have IBS. That's what the specificity tells us. Oops. But the sensitivity, that is telling you if this is actually there or not, is that it's only present in 43% of the, of the for cytotoxin B and 32% for vinculin. And I think that's because that's the percentage that have this mechanism. It's not everybody with IBS. It's somewhere between 30 and 45% of people with IBS may have had this mechanism happen. So we'll have to see how this develops as a test. This has been commercialized and I think is supposed to be coming back. But it's a test that you don't have IBS, not really a test that you do. Now, what about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? This is something that's been talked about a great deal, too. And the problem we have here is that the diagnostic tests that we have for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth are not very good. Uh, and they don't pick things up. There are technical issues with where you're sampling, what you're sampling. 
Uh, breath hydrogen testing has a lot of faults, even though it's sort of the accepted tests for many of these patients. Uh, people with IBS may have lower concentrations of bacteria than people with traditional bacterial overgrowth where they have malabsorption steatorrhea. And more needs to be learned about the different niches in the small intestine. It's not only what's out there in the lumen, which is what we sample, but probably what's right up against the mucosa, uh, the germs that are interacting directly with, with our gut. So there are lots of studies done. The prevalence of SIBO is very large, depending on what test you use, anywhere from 10 to 80%. Uh, if you look at uh, summary statistics, it's probably about 25 to 30% who may have this. Uh, and the important thing about this is some people with IBS with diarrhea have a prolonged extended response to antibiotic therapy, which suggests that something with either SIBO or the next problem, dysbiosis, a problem with the composition of the bacteria, may be responsible for their symptoms. Now, dysbiosis right now is more a concept than a defined uh, disease because what we have is there are people who have uh, bacteria, there are a variety of different bacteria, depends on where you live, what you eat, that sort of thing. So it's all variable to begin with. And then to say, well, some people have a little bit more of this or that, and that's dysbiosis, that's great. Uh, and the microbial families may be different from IBS than, than other patients, at least for some. But how that can produce symptoms is not at all clear. Uh, you know, say you have extra E. coli in your gut. How does that make you sick if it's not a pathogenic E. coli? So we have a lot to understand and learn about this before we accept this as a sure thing. But we do know that antibiotics can help. Now, the schema for this is that people have these episodes of uh, infection, of food poisoning, if you will, and most of them recover and go back to their normal type of flora. But some people may have a different flora after they have these episodes, and that may cause a lot of changes in terms of the, the metabolites they make, how they metabolize bile acids, and how they work in our body. Now, treatment. Let's talk about that for a little bit. The traditional schema is lifestyle treatments, uh, diet, over-the-counter drugs, and then prescription drugs. Now, lifestyle, this comes from the uh, International Foundation for Functional Gastrointestinal Diseases, their website. It's a patient-directed website. And it tells you, you know, what lifestyles it refers to, things in your life that you have control over. So there are lots of different things in your life that you have control over that might impact your symptoms. And people have uh, different feels for this. A lot of people feel that stress is real important for them or what they eat, that sort of thing. Uh, some people think exercising more helps. All these different things are sort of out there. They don't help everybody, but we usually have a discussion about it. Because any patient who goes on the Internet will find stuff like this and say they have to change your lifestyle. And to the extent they can, I think it's fine. I mean, doing things to de-stress is probably good for a lot of other reasons, maybe than just IBS. Now, the diet recommendations uh, stem from the fact that one of the lifestyle things that people always talk about is what they eat. And uh, food does seem to influence symptoms in many patients. Patients initiate diet changes because someone says, well, have you tried this diet? Because the common conception is that anything that's wrong with your gut is due to what you eat. And so they try all sorts of things. Lactose-free diets are popular, gluten-free. You, know, you can find lots of gluten-free foods 
uh, here in Dallas because people think it's good for them. Uh, if you don't have celiac disease, there's really no evidence it is good for you, but uh, people do it nonetheless, and some people feel better for it. So I don't knock that. I think that's great. There are other recommendations. The NICE diet, NICE acronym. It's the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence from the UK. They provide guidelines for lots of uh, diseases, including uh, IBS, and they have a, a diet that uh, is pretty straightforward. Uh, the one that's popular right now amongst doctors is the low FODMAPs diet. This is a diet that reduces fermentable carbohydrates in the diet, which seem to impact things. And then there's uh, evergreen interest in prebiotic foods and probiotics, good bacteria and the foods that stimulate their growth. So this shows you that patients do feel that meals make a difference. This shows you the percentage of IBS patients reporting improvement with changing their diet. So small meals improve symptoms in 69% of people. That's better than any medicine. Avoiding fat, 64%. Increasing fiber, 58%. Avoiding milk products, 54%. If it makes them feel better, I'm all for it. I don't know what the reason is in some of these cases, but if they're happy with it, that's good. And that's the basis for the modified NICE diet. Do what feels good with your food. Have small, frequent meals, avoid trigger foods, avoid excess alcohol, avoid caffeine. The FODMAPS diet's more restrictive and specific in what it wants you to take out of the diet. These different carbohydrates are relatively hard to digest. A number of them get down to the colon. For every teaspoon of carbohydrate that gets to your colon, you make a liter of gas. Okay, that, the bacteria do that for us. They ferment things. So you will get bloated and gassy if you eat a lot of carbohydrates that are poorly absorbed. So this diet takes those out of the system. The idea is to be, be strict about it and then reintroduce things that you particularly miss until you find one that uh, seems to be the trigger food. Uh, comparing these two, if you look at the NICE diet and the low FODMAP diet, there's no statistical difference in this particular survey between the two. But that doesn't mean they don't work. It means they work roughly equivalently. Prebiotics are foods that help bacteria grow. You can think of them as being sort of fertilizer for the microbiome. Uh, and they're mainly uh, poorly digestible carbohydrates, sort of the opposite of FODMAPs. So things like uh, fructose oligosaccharides and inulin. Uh, there also is the potential for non-carbohydrates to be in this group, but none have been described so far. There's no official recommended intake. There's very limited evidence that this helps in any sort of disease state. Probiotics are the live good bacteria that you hear about on TV all the time. If you go to the drugstore, you'll see shelves of these things. Most of them are dead bacteria in those bottles because they've been just sitting out for a while. Uh, if you have a patient use these, you want them to use one that has some guarantee that the organisms are alive. There's no scientific basis for saying what organisms are probiotics. It's all empiric. Uh, there are a wide variety of these available. It's not a generic thing where one works as well as the next. They're all different. And studies with a few specific agents have shown some benefit. It's on the same order of magnitude as the prescription drugs. So uh, it's not that there's nothing here. It's just it's very complicated, and people just go to the store and pick a bottle, and good luck with that. Uh, so many uh, patients uh, do these diets. I think it's always best if you get them to talk with a dietitian because they can give them specific instructions. That fee for the dietitian is real important uh, in order to get these executed properly, and I strongly suggest doing that. 
Now, how about over-the-counter drugs? There are two that are used frequently. One's loperamide, the other's peppermint oil. Loperamide is an opioid drug. Uh, it works to slow the gut down, so it helps diarrhea just great. Uh, loperamide's not a particularly good pain medicine, and so uh, it doesn't do much for that. And if you look at global symptoms, the more recent studies show it's not effective for global IBS symptoms, which include pain. Older studies, patients were pretty happy with it. And I certainly think a lot of people with IBS, with diarrhea, are helped by taking some loperamide. Gives them some control over the diarrhea, which is nothing to uh, uh, you know, be upset about. Peppermint oil is another old remedy. The menthol is the active ingredient there. It works as a smooth muscle relaxer. It helps with cramps. A systematic review suggested it was effective. A recent large randomized controlled trial showed it didn't quite meet the criteria we use for IBS drugs, uh, but it worked okay. The side effect there is heartburn. We also use uh, some prescription drugs, sort of off-label, pain-modifying drugs like tricyclics, gabapentin or pregabalin help with pain. And sometimes it's enough to use a drug like that and then add something like loperamide to control the diarrhea. We also use antispasmodic drugs. They're mainly anticholinergics. Uh, and then there are three prescription drugs that are approved by the FDA, elocitron, elixadiline, and rifaximin. The pain modification drugs are non-opiate pain medicines. There are heterogeneous studies, uh, pretty much none uh, that are well done in IBS. Uh, they impact the, uh, the pain more than bowel symptoms, uh, but global symptoms tend to be better if you help the pain. The anti-spasmodic drugs uh, seem to help. There are tons of these different medicines. Very few of them have been studied by modern techniques. We think they're sort of helpful, but uh, uh, many patients don't respond to them. Uh, Dicyclamine is not a cure-all for IBS. Uh, Losatron is a serotonin uh, receptor antagonist. It works on the 5-HT3 receptor. This is the only drug I'm aware of that was actually taken off the market by the FDA and brought back by patient demand. It works very well in some patients with IBS with diarrhea and can normalize their lives, but it was taken off the market because there were rare instances of terrible problems with ischemic colitis and serious complications of constipation, like having to go in the hospital. So uh, those complications still exist. It's under a prescription management program from the FDA, and these things haven't been a big problem since its reintroduction, but whereas half a million prescriptions were written the first six months it was out at the turn of the century, there have been only about 50,000 prescriptions in all since it was reintroduced in the uh, 2005 timeline. Alexadiline is another opiate drug. It's a Schedule IV drug, and as you might expect, it works on pain and on diarrhea. And uh, it has low sy systemic exposure, so uh, it doesn't have a great abuse risk. Only about one out of 1,000 people experience euphoria with this medicine. Uh, it's ineffective in patients who've had previous tries with loperamide. But curiously, uh, during the studies, there were some patients who got pancreatitis or had uh, problems with what was thought to be sphincter voting dysfunction. And so this drug is contraindicated in anyone with biliary or pancreatic disease or who might get it because they drink a lot of alcohol. So uh, it's limited in its, uh, its use because of that. Side effects are what you'd expect with an opiate, nausea, constipation, and abdominal pain. Uh, this shows you the response rate. Uh, you can see here that that uh, uh, curve goes up to 100%. 
the highest number of response is 31%. So only about a little less than a third of people will respond to this medicine. Now, rifaximin is an antibiotic drug, and it's one that modifies the uh, bacteria in the gut to some extent. It's poorly absorbed, so it doesn't have much systemic uh, function. It bonds to the DNA and the germs and uh, blocks their transcription, so it kills them off. It's been approved in the U.S. for treating traveler's diarrhea for 15 years. It's also approved for hepatic encephalopathy, and it was re uh, recently approved for irritable bowel syndrome on a somewhat different schedule than for the under other indications. For this one, you take 550 milligrams three times a day for 14 days, two weeks only, and then you see if it worked or not. And we're looking for an extended response to that medicine over time. So you take the medicine for a short time, you're off the medicine, and hopefully you stay symptom-free because it's done something to the bacteria in your gut. And this shows you the response rate here is about 40% uh, for the active drug in, in these initial trials, uh, looking at how people were doing four weeks after they stopped the medicine. So you took it for two weeks, stopped the medicine, four weeks later, you see if you're having symptoms, 40% of people were good. Now, the question the FDA raised is, well, what happens to these people later on? And so they insisted on a retreatment study, and this is it. So they took uh, uh, 2,400 patients who uh, had uh, IBS with diarrhea by criteria. They treated all of them with rifaximin, 550 milligrams three times a day. And 44%, similar to the double-blind studies, responded. That is, their symptoms went away when they were assessed at the end of a month. And then they followed them out. And one interesting thing is that 36% of the people who responded initially to that didn't relapse during 18 weeks. That's uh, four and a half months after their, their dosing. So that's pretty good to do without medicine to have your symptoms under control. 59% of the people did relapse and were retreated uh, with the same regimen again for another two weeks. And you can see that they responded better than the people treated with placebo, too. So the FDA has allowed this medicine to be used a total of, of uh, twice uh, if it worked the first time. So uh, Rifaxman has a two-week course that has a prolonged impact, which is its a great advantage. The FDA prescribing information allows for two retreatments. There's no evidence of emergence of antibiotic resistance. There's moderate transient decreases in multiple uh, taxa of the gut microbiota, but nothing you can say, well, this is why it worked. It's well tolerated. The most, so, uh, most common side effects were nausea and 3%, transient uh, bump in liver tests, and these were similar placebo and went away because you're only treating for two weeks at a time. So this seems to be a very safe and effective medicine for some patients. I was also asked to just touch on future uh, prospects for this. I think one thing that may happen is we may move away from our non-diagnostic strategy once we get better ways of diagnosing the things that people really have with this. Right now, we don't have any tests for food intolerance other than trying a diet. We don't have very good tests for bile acid malabsorption other than trying a bile acid binder. We don't have a good test for dysbiosis except for treating people and seeing if they get better. So that's where we are right now. But using that kind of strategy, I think we probably can help the vast majority of people who have IBS that we see. We'll also likely see new agents come along and maybe new targets. 
Well, I'll turn things back to Dr. Weber at this point to talk a little bit about the comparative trials and uh, the cost-effectiveness of these things. Thank you very much for this outstanding state-of-the-art lecture on Thank that. You. Wonderful. Um, yeah, so I was tasked also to uh, take issue with the cost-effectiveness of therapies that are available and uh, jump right into this. This is a, a slide from a, a recent study where actually um, the estimated uh, quality of life and associated cost was um, actually assessed. And that is based on a quality of life assessment in relation to the cost of the treatment. And what you see listed here is uh, that the three FDA-approved uh, treatment options were looked at, and the basis of that is actually uh, were the randomized controlled trials with these uh, drugs, and they then looked at what the quality of life scores were of these patients, either the placebo arm or the real treatment arm. And what you can see is, uh, that is, uh, what the change uh, compared to the baseline, um, and that is when you look in the intervention group, that in fact the intervention group had a much better improvement of symptoms as based on the quality of life as compared to placebo. And that's what you see in these numbers, so the percent improvement essentially. And in addition, what this effectiveness study does, it puts it into perspective to the cost. So it's, if you wish, a value-based assessment of uh, treatment in IBS, and that's what you can see here. So in other words, rifaximin here shows the lowest cost uh, in terms of the comparison with other treatments, even though the improvement was not as high as the others. So it's up to us to decide what is really valuable in the treatment of patient, cost versus effectiveness. Um, in the same study, they also looked actually at the cost effectiveness and compared the results of the uh, aforementioned data. And this is uh, either given as quality adjusted life years, which the lowest was um, for rifaximin, again, as compared to alocitron and alexalidin. And when you actually compare, it turned out that, again, rifaximin turned out to be the preferred treatment based on the cost analysis. And this is uh, taking on the basis of a one-cost treatment over a three-month period of time. Uh, the methodology behind that is rather complicated and basically contains um, complicated mathematical modeling where they try to uh, adjust for different um, conditions in the very beginning and also include actually a risk assessment of the patient's treatment um, in that particular analysis. Um, we had already heard um, to a great deal about the dietary considerations in IBS, um, and so I don't have to belabor on that. Um, and what the effect is, in fact, on the gut microbiota, as Larry pointed out, here the gut microbiota is the totality of microorganism in the gut that we now understand right next to the mucosa as opposed to in the um, lumen may be actually different, but they react and some of the bacteria, like Bifidobacter, for instance, are changing in response to interventions that we do. Uh, uh, this is just one example of such a, a fault map trial where, as compared to placebo, 
the global symptom score was actually improved in this particular study. However, um, and this is similarly with bifidobacter, so one of the probiotics that we use, um, again, a slight advantage over placebo, yet, as we just heard, if we look at the totality of the evidence published in the literature, uh, there is really, although in some uh, improved global score, in general, we are not making any recommendation to uh, supporting this treatment because we don't just have enough uh, data. Um, this is um, an updated slide on a similar meta-analysis and systematic review, how these uh, interventions actually fare. You can see here in terms of the FODMAP diet, there's really um, no evidence that gluten-free diet does anything. Um, as Dr. Schiller pointed out, and there's very low quality evidence that FODMAP diet does actually anything except to say that some trials showed a positive result, similar to the probiotics. So um, one interesting aspect that you may were wondering about is you may have heard of fecal transplant. This is a treatment that we use actually for a very specific infection of the gut with C. difficile. Um, this has been tried out also in irritable bowel and has been shown of no value. Um, these are the medication treatments that um, Dr. Schiller already alluded to. So FDA approved uh, three different uh, drugs. And based on all of uh, the evidence, the AGA actually in a recent publication just came out actually in September, um, showed what should we do about the uh, diagnostic workup in these patients. Um, so as I pointed out earlier, it is important to exclude any alarm features um, of these patients which would warrant really a further determination of the cause. However, in case um, of suspected irritable bowel, um, there is really um, some evidence in some cases uh, stronger evidence, um, in others not so strong, that diagnostic tests are actually indicated. So particularly in patients with irritable bowel with diarrhea. So for instance, tests for Giardia and celiac disease are actually recommended with a strong uh, recommendation, whereas others are not so clear. Um, on the other hand, for instance, um, signs of systemic inflammation such as CRP or SAD rate are not included and not recommended. And uh, this is just showing the same. So when we uh, try to put this all together, uh, you know, we've heard about quality of life um, affected, healthcare burden and cost effectiveness. We still have to come back to a patient to provider interaction, which is really the key element and lays the foundation um, of our work and making a diagnosis. Um, and clearly important is that we use, have to use the wrong for all criteria that are the clinical syndrome criteria to make the diagnosis. And it is very important in our interaction with the patients to actually voice that. We have to tell the patient, this is what you have. Um, patients really suffer from the frustration that they don't have a diagnosis and run from doctor to doctor without getting an answer to their questions. Um, we have to acknowledge a lot of comorbidities which require potentially the help of other specialties. Um, 
and we need to make sure that the patients um, learn to uh, accept that there is a uh, expectation that has to be realistic. This is just summarizing it. So on one hand, we are talking about the patient has to learn coping skills um, and understanding that expectations is not cure of the disease rather than a successful management of symptoms. The rewards are very clear. By doing so and establishing a trusted relationship between the provider and the patient, we have a, a, a great deal of um, improvement in reducing cost, as I just showed, quality of life. Um, it is actually reducing medical malpractice claims, and it will also um, help the patient to adhere and be compliant uh, with the recommendations. This is just in general about efficient communication with the patient between provider and the patient, which is true uh, obviously in all medicine. However, particularly true in irritable bowel syndrome because you're facing a disease that has no biomarker. We cannot tell the patient this is the diagnosis based on one test, as we heard, rather than a uh, summary of different clinical symptoms. Um, and we understand that this trusted relationship is really based on a series of nonverbal and verbal interactions. The most important ones are showing empathy and um, listening to the patient. Active listening is shown here. It's actually one of the most difficult uh, things to do nowadays because of electronic medical records. In general, we see the bad examples where providers are just staring into the computer screen, typing, and that's it. They never look at the patient, unfortunately. Um, the other thing is that we have to give the patient time um, and don't interrupt them. It actually has been studied how long it takes for the provider to interrupt the patient when he comes into the office. And it's actually 16 seconds. So it's a very short time, rather than letting the patient uh, speak about the symptoms that he or she has. This is just a profile that we have. So it's clinical modifiers of IBS based on the subtype. Uh, we have clearly uh, different forms of IBS, severe, mild to moderate. And these, um, again, cannot be diagnosed with a particular test rather clinical assessment of symptoms. So the model is here that we have patients who have very um, severe psychological, uh, psychological distress um, with severe comorbidities, particularly psychiatric in nature, um, and on the other hand, the typical GI symptoms, which results then in the quality of life that is highly um, severe or significantly reduced. Okay, so in a, in a summary is that you want to listen to the patient, show empathy, educate, make a positive diagnosis, and then, um, as we heard from Dr. Schiller, apply the potential medical interventions that are reasonable and indicated in these patients.